how are we going to kick this off, Cormac? I think we're just going to jump right into it. That was the intro. Me Let's saying that right there. Let's say, yeah. That, that's how we do things. We've got a special guest. We we've been branching out, having guests on the show. I think it probably took us years to even have a guest, and then once we dabbled in that, it's it's actually been pretty fun. And this is a cool crossover because we've just recently uh, been getting onto YouTube. And so today we're joined by Cam Anderson of Blacktail Studio, who has a huge YouTube channel and is a maker and owner of Blacktail Studio. And maybe Cam, you can give us a little short intro to yourself and tell us about you and where you're coming from. Sure, sure. Well, like yourself, I'm based out of Oregon. I'm a small one-man woodworking shop. Started making things part-time just to kind of as, as a hobby, and it turned into pretty good sized social media channel. So anymore, I have to, my wife says I have to say that I'm an actual YouTuber, not a woodworker anymore. So I'm a 40 year old uh, YouTuber now. Right. I, I will say, yeah, this. you have to put, you have to put the title first of what you do the most. That, that is a given. Your wife's exactly. right. I'll, I'll say this, you know, so I, I've been watching your videos at home and streaming them on the big TV. And my daughter was just like, oh, let me look. He's like, wow, that's impressive. Over 2 million. So big accolades from a, a nearly 16 year old, you know, she's just like, this is amazing. Well, well that's, that's what counts. To, that's what counts to 16 year olds. Apparently. <laughs> I just wish it mattered to adults. I know, right? <laughs> well, clearly it does matter because you've got a pretty huge following and it's just amazing. It's good. It's, it's fun. I'm, I'm, I can't imagine going back to a real job after doing this. Okay. So I, I have to ask because, uh, listening to, and then doing a little bit of like background, correct me if I'm wrong but you were a helicopter pilot for a rescue pilot, correct? We were, I was the helicopter pilot for the air ambulance. Okay. So it's, it's, it's cool to say rescue, but we're, we were basically like an ambulance. Sure. So it's just, it's, people ask me this too. It's just like, how did you transition from the military to being an architect? So I'm going to ask you the same questions. Like, how did you transition from being a helicopter pilot? to woodworking and saying, yeah, I don't need to do this anymore. I'm going up full-time woodworking. You know, it was kind of because I was a pilot. I, one of the best things about pilots is we, they have really good schedules. And so I had seven days on, I worked seven, 12 hour shifts, and then I had seven days off. And so I needed something to do with my time. And so I've just always kind of like tinkering and I was like, I'll start woodworking a little bit. And then I started doing a little bit more and a little bit more. And then social media started to do well. And pretty soon it's like, I might be able to do this full time, which I'd never, ever thought. Like I, it's very common in the pilot world to quit being a pilot. <laughs> You'd think it wouldn't be, but it's really, really common. And I was always like, who would spend all that time and money and all this to just quit? And then I ended up being one of them. <laughs> so are, are you an accidental woodworker then? Is it, is this the kind of thing that you've always had a knack for and that that you've cultivated over time or was this something you just like you said you used to fill your time I, i'm wondering where the where i'd say the... i'd say more accidental i uh i've always liked just messing around with stuff building stuff i was never very good at it but i would in high school i'd build an aquarium stand for my friends at a two by four so i was the woodworker amongst the group but i was a bad woodworker <laughs> and i didn't have like a shop that i could use and all that we just i like making stuff yeah cool the, the whole idea of making stuff has been something that we've talked about a lot on the podcast over the years. And, and architects who do know how to swing a hammer and how to make things typically do a little, well, I hate to say better, but I guess we'll just say better. 
because the the idea of knowing how things go together is usually a big disconnect. It's not the kind of thing that there's a lot of time, and you might be surprised to hear this, during architectural school, this is not something that there's a big focus on. There's not a lot of hands-on making or building. There, There's a couple of classes, uh, materials and methods and things like that, where you learn some of the basics. You may learn how to mix concrete or lay some yeah. bricks or do something like that. But for the most part, there's not a lot of training. And then in the profession, there's not much field visitation that actually happens because you've got to sit at that desk and you've got to click the mouse and make the and make the drawings, right? And so your time is valuable producing the deliverable that architects have. And so we talk in, the, in terms of making like a lot of remodeling and things that we do uh, on the side in our lives, but also just kind of the value that brings to the practice of architecture. I, I, I'm wondering I, I, from I could, your standpoint, like, like, do you get a lot out of making stuff with your hands? I, I kind of assume the answer is yes, but, but I'd love to hear I, your side. I just, I love doing it. This is sounds cliche, but if I wasn't being paid, I probably wouldn't be trying to get a video on, on my right. regular schedule, but I'd still be in the shop just building stuff or doing stuff. I'd maybe give it away or do whatever, but it's just what I enjoy doing. So yeah, mm. I, I love it. And I have a question for you about that because I, I could, I definitely see where you're coming from, but I'm curious, have you ever seen the occasions where maybe an architect that doesn't know anything about building can get more out of the builders or more out of the project because he doesn't know it's not possible where he'll say, I need this. And they'll say, oh, we can't do it. And then somebody has to figure it out and then they find a way around mm. it. So I'll jump in and answer a little bit of that. It's, it, it's a little bit of it's, it's a double-edged sword there because sometimes people will just assume, okay, this is how I drew it. This is how I want it built. And the builder is like, no, 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 this isn't how we build it. And if they're not open to listening and not opening to understanding, yeah. they're going to just continue to keep pushing. This is the way I want this to be. And, you know, it's those architects that'll listen and say, okay, this is how we build it. And then the questions are going to be, okay, well, is it going to change the design? Is it going to be is my design intent going to be different? And they're like, no, we'll still be able to achieve your design intent. This is how we build it. And this is how, if you're starting to detail it, this is how you should do it. And for me, I'm a car kid, you know, both my father and grandfather retired from General Motors. And so I grew up with a wrench in my hand. And so I was always wanting to understand how to learn how to take cars apart, put them back together and things like that. And so I've always asked the question. I've always been the ones that are hands-on asking the questions, hey, how do you build this? How do you build this? And, you know, so if I was going to ever like attempt to build a table, I wouldn't just say, Hey, I'm going to just, you know, out of the blue, I would actually ask somebody who builds a table. How do you build a table? How would I go about starting it? What do I need to learn? What, where am I going to fail? Where am I going to go? There's so in architecture, you do kind of sort of have that two track mind It's the one that's curious about learning and curious about how things go together. And those that are just saying, no, no, just do it the way I drew it. <laughs> yeah. It kind of depends on the project too. I think that a lot of times, like what Cormac said, when the, when the contractor is involved, well, first of all, there's another disconnect there. Like you don't always have the luxury of talking to a builder during the design process. Yeah. And so then you go through all the pains of drawing it up and how you think it could go together. And then they say, that's not going to work. And, and then it's like, okay, now... We're going to collaboratively or maybe not redesign based on the way it actually goes. Uh, and, and so there, there are advantages for people who know how to build during design. 
And a lot of times that still may not match up with what a contractor is going to do, but then it becomes kind of a, a problem solving on the job site kind of a, a, an issue. And that I think is, those are pretty incredible opportunities to actually work together to where everybody's kind of learning. It's not just one person saying no sure. or yes. Um, it's more like, okay, let's figure this out. So there, again, there are kind of advantages if you know how some things go together, but also I think those fundamentals then translate into pushing design and pushing materials into maybe a new realm. Right. And yeah. then there's other kinds of projects where it's just like, maybe it's a K-12 school or something where it's a more of a, a, a low bid environment. <laughs> and, and that is a very different kind of a contractor than a very high-end capital A architect and contractor team. So. Sure. It's all over the map. <laughs> there, there's not a great I, way to answer I, that. I've had similar sentiments where I don't take many custom orders anymore, but I feel like I still should take some because if I get too comfortable, then I'm not going to push mm. myself. With, if mm. I have a client that's saying, I want this, and me saying, I don't know how to do that, yeah. and then having to figure it out, I think is beneficial and interesting even for the videos. Well, what's interesting about, so you started in what, 2016? Yeah. Okay. And, and so... I'm, I'm, in, I'm just assuming that a lot of that was that kind of like trial and error phase. It's just like a lot of times you probably like went through a whole lot of money in tools and materials and failures. It's, 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 it's all I did. I didn't, I'm, I'm a little less like you that you described how you go research and do all this stuff. I'm the guy that I, I don't like read, reading instructions and it's not because I, someone said it's some toxic masculinity thing. And I was like, no, I'm just lazy. I just am oh, trying to like oh, yeah. get, get yeah, it yeah. as quick as I can. And so yeah. I just jumped in trying to do it and failing a lot. And then we got a little bit better each time. Oh, I, you, I actually wrote that down. I said, you, you don't, I, I, I noticed that by watching your videos that you just jump in, you don't overthink it. You don't research it. Like I was just thinking about like my, my wife, she, she likes to spend six weeks ahead of time, like <laughs> figuring it out so that she does it right the very first Mine, time. I do. And she's very, exper I'm very experimental in, in a similar way to you, maybe not to the extreme that you are, but it's like that those are, I, I think what, what's interesting is like you, you get those happy accidents to quote like Bob Ross when he's doing the painting on PBS. It's like, sometimes you can't plan for that stuff and something unexpected and cool comes out of that or unexpected, maybe cool. They don't always go together. Right. But, but, but I, it, it I, is kind I, of an uh... interesting scenario to go through. I, I have the luxury of not building bridges and buildings that can collapse on right. people. <laughs> if my table falls over, I'll probably be okay. Uh, so you guys can't quite wing it as much as me, I assume. No, not really. No. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, I mean, although, you know, what's interesting, the design process in a lot of cases will take, and, and I'm, I'm not sure if it's the same with you, but we see things out there. And, you know, we want to maybe mimic it, but we want to maybe expand on it or, or do something a little bit differently. So it's just like, okay, I see that. And I want to do something a little bit different and don't ask anybody. Don't see if we can try it. We just try it, try it, trial and error. If it works, somebody's going to tell us that, Hey, that works. Or somebody's going to say, oh, that doesn't work. And sometimes it costs sure. you know, a little bit of extra money. I, w I was on a podcast this morning, uh, with, a, with a friend of mine and it, one of the the things that we talked about, and then Cormac and I, we just talked about this too last week when we were in San Francisco, but it, the idea of, and I think this fits really closely with what you do, is like you're experimenting on the fly, on camera, like in the open, 
and it's a prototype, like the project that yeah. you, the thing you're making, you don't know how it's going to turn out a hundred percent. Like you've got some ideas in your head. You don't have it all figured out ahead of time. Like we just talked about. And Cormac and I, I were just talking about this too, because we got to visit an R and D facility in San Francisco where they're prototyping really high tech stuff. And the idea there that we conveyed back to them was like, you know what? Architecture is too. Yeah. Every building is a prototype. Yeah. And you because it's like a one-off, it's based on some hypothesis. It's like there's these ideas, the functionality, the aesthetics, like all of these things play yeah. into it. But you don't really know if it's going to hmm. perform exactly as you envisioned it during that design process. And so... There's a, there's some similarity there, and the scale of the projects is obviously different. But I think part of the education of an architect is getting comfortable with the prototyping of ideas and putting them up on the wall and letting people weigh in on them. And I mean, but that makes it all the way through the design of and the the actual like building coming to fruition as well. I, I have a question for you on on that. Every building's a prototype. I was I am looking at getting a commercial property or an industrial property. And I got a little bit into the process on one property before um, it didn't go through, but my father-in-law has built a lot of buildings and a lot of business. And he was telling me the process and kind of guiding me to some architects. And I was like, well, why do I need an architect? Can't, isn't there like a, if I just want a warehouse, like, isn't there like a warehouse, like catalog, like there are house catalogs, you know, this, and they're like, oh no, this needs to be custom design. I'm like, it's a square lot. And so. <laughs> Why is everything a prototype in architecture is, and I know you could buy a steel building, but when you want like a warehouse on a lot, why is everything a prototype? Well, so I, I used to way back in the day, do more builder home type stuff. Not let me just uh, build their home as a, as a bad way of explaining this, but, but basically you've got these factory built homes and yes, that, that portion of it is kind of like a repeatable thing, but. The site itself is not repeatable. The site is always different. So you're always going to have to taper anything that basically comes out of a factory to each of the sites. So even if it is like you got, you buy a kit, you're still going to have to modify it to that. So there is a little bit of prototyping to the site that actually makes it unique to the next Butler building or the next metal building that came out of the shop right after it. it everything is always going to be just a little bit different. Just a little unique, right. but I, but but to your point, there, especially in like industrial buildings, there's so much repeating yes. of work that's already yeah. happened that people have figured a lot of stuff out. It's oh. when I say every building is a prototype, I think I'm being very general in that sense, but but really more towards the architect side of things, not the mm -hmm. the like Cormac is talking about these very kind of repeated, mm -hmm. some would say cookie cutter, right, kind of buildings yeah. that you're talking about. Sure. But I mean, it's even like within your process, I mean, you've gone through and you've done this process so many times that a lot of things are second nature to you. And a lot of things that we do are very second nature to us. You know, we, you know, we'll go to our kit of parts. We'll look at the type of windows the type of doors, the type of wall construction and all of that other stuff. And we'll, it won't necessarily be assembled the same way, but we're always going back to our toolbox to look at what we can do what is comfortable to us to be able to produce something that we like, that we enjoy, but is something that isn't like reinventing the wheel. Yeah. I'll, I'll sure. just add on just, just to put another layer <laughs> onto this. 
building codes change, energy oh codes gosh, change. Yes. The re plan review person and the, the the city changes and they want something different or they want to see or the builder changes and they do it a different way. So you can see how there's a lot of variables sure. in the recipe for a building. So so with that, curious because I mean what's what's very interesting about a lot of the videos you post are, are not necessarily just the content of the video itself, but the audience interaction. Um, I'm sure you have a blast with the whole comments because, you know, some of them you're like, really, this is the question you're going to ask. I like to, I like to highlight those. I feel like, uh, people seem entertained by that. So I like to draw attention to those. They do. I mean, you know, the ones that seem to come to the forefront are when people are correcting you on your English or, you know, it's just something that's like, like, wow, this... no, no shortage of, of experts out there. And it's, uh, <laughs> I, I've even started pinning that comment to the like top comment so <laughs> nice. that everybody can reply and most people are positive so oh, yeah these people pretty quick figure out like oh i'm in the minority yeah. here like they might think everybody feels the same way as me and then they have a hundred people commenting to them call you know calling them out i feel like it's a it's what we need in society today where we used to get you know if you mouth off on the playground you'd get punched yeah like you don't have that anymore <laughs> so it so it's the uh social punch because, yeah, I mean, well, what's interesting about it is because, so the reason I brought, kind of brought it up is like, it was everyone was saying is like, it's like how people do things. You know, we always get these, it's just like, oh, you know, I've been doing it this way for 25 years. And sometimes we're like, you know, well, you know, that may not necessarily be the right way to do it or, or anything like that. And you've never shied away from in any of your videos or in any of the comments, you've never really shied away from when somebody tells you, hey, you're doing it wrong. It's just like, no, I'm doing it my way. I'm the one yeah. building this table, not you. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, people tell me like, my uncle's a better woodworker and charges half as much. And I'm like, that's not really a compliment to your uncle. Like, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's just like, well, you know, maybe you should, maybe you should send this to your uncle and have a conversation with him about how. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't brag about yeah, that. But... Like, <laughs> <laughs> we, we, as a. Well, Cormac and I have talked about this many times over the years. We kind of grew up watching shows like This Old House, and, mm. and I grew up building stuff with my dad as well and learning how to use a table saw at way too young of an age and things like that, right? And, and YouTube's a completely different ball game. It's because of the comment section, and I'm I'm glad you brought this up, Cormac, because I, it is interesting to me how you address... You're kind of looking ahead, at the comments that are going to come from the thing that you just did as you're narrating the voiceover for your video. And it's interesting to me to watch that play out because, I mean, that's something that like Norm never had to deal with on this old house, right? He, he never had to worry about the comments that would come out. People, of course, would be in the armchair quarterback in their own living room without the internet. And I don't know how, how it's changed this old house in the last decade, but that to me is a different dynamic and you're like taking it head on and addressing it during the so, creation It's funny of you say video. that because speaking of that, someone recently, I had said, I don't cuss hardly at all in my videos, but there was this moment that it was just kind of a funny thing. It's hard to explain now, but I, I said the F word and it was, we, we even bleeped it, but we, it's obvious that I said it. And someone commented and said, Norm would never use language like that. <laughs> and so I replied... And Tim Allen trafficked Coke. I'm somewhere in the middle. <laughs> right. So I was like, nice. I mean, that's, it's interesting how you don't take it too seriously. Because I think one thing that 
again, like bringing this back to architecture, like the thing that we learn going through school, when you're, you're putting some pretty wild ideas up on the wall. And that's a vulnerable state to be in as the designer to like put your very fragile baby ideas up on the wall and have somebody sure. walk by and like literally rip them down. And so you develop kind of a thick skin. But then throughout practice, I think that th that skin once again gets thinner and thinner and thinner, depending on the job and the role you play. It's interesting for me to watch how you deal with the trolls on the internet who are, obviously there's people who have a very negative outlook or just want to crap on someone in the YouTube comments or any, any website's comments. And so it's interesting to me to hear, like you're, you approach it with like a level of humor and, and you're, you're not too serious about sure. it. I mean, those ones, I, I feel like they're easy not to let get to you because they're just so obviously someone's looking to upset someone and mm -hmm. engaging with them is gonna, is not gonna get you anywhere in terms of like arguing like, oh no, this is a good job. The ones that will get to me is when early on I, I've tried to hide mistakes. Like I broke this bow tie going in once and I kind of like tried to hide it in the camera <laughs> and. And I had people, of course, that video got like 2 million views, which was a lot for me back then. Right. And so all these people are like, this, you broke this, you're, you know, calling me out for that. And those ones like, oh, I did. Cause I knew I screwed up and I knew I tried to hide it. And I was now just, you just like, put it right oh, on display. Right. right. Like, yeah. And like so your latest one, denim table one, you're just like, oh shit. Like the, the acrylics all over the garage floor. <laughs> Oops, yeah, I right. mean, most people relate to that stuff because projects have speed bumps and when they act like everything goes perfect it's not even fun to watch it doesn't you can't relate to it so well, i mean yeah. you know yeah. there's the the sense of reality is just like none of this is easy and to be able to just like put it out there and say look i'm gonna make mistakes i'm gonna screw up i'm gonna drop an f-bomb here and there because oh crap it just happens and and it it's it's a sense of reality that you're putting out there, which is far more engaging. In in my opinion, it's far more engaging when you're just like, yeah, you know what? People are gonna call me out on this one, but this is the way that I'm gonna do it, and this is the way I'm gonna fix it or not fix it. It's funny. I I very rarely actually get called out when I address it in advance. When I say like, <laughs> oh, this will upset some people, and then everybody's like, oh, took my thunder. Like, Damn it! Now what am I gonna bitch about? <laughs> yeah. Short circuited them. Well, one thing that Cormac and I have been doing for a decade plus is putting stuff on the internet. And so I'm interested to hear from you, like why you decided to do that. You were, you said you, you got a small woodworking shop. You sounds like you, you've been doing custom work for people over the years. How did the YouTube component work its way into Blacktail Studio? Yeah, I'd started um, making things kind of for fun and my wife told me that I should get on Instagram in like probably 2016 and I didn't have an Instagram page. And so I signed up for it and I had a couple weeks later, I'd posted some pictures. I had like four followers and they were all the robots, you know, <laughs> it wasn't even a real person. I thought you literally had to go ask each person individually, like, hello, Cormac, will you follow me on Instagram? <laughs> Thank you, Evan, will you subscribe to me? Right. Like, I didn't know that like hashtags, people could find you and search you. Like, I didn't know anything. So she taught me what a hashtag was. She put some deals on some on some pictures and i had like 30 followers and i was like this is fun so i started doing what she showed me and i was pretty good at instagram i got to i think maybe around forty thousand or so on instagram it was like okay like maybe i should try youtube mm -hmm. and 
all I really wanted was maybe find another customer for selling these projects. I was building them in my off time for as a pilot. And I thought, I don't know, maybe I'll get another customer at it. My wife even asked, she said, I told her I was going to start a YouTube channel. She goes, good. She goes, what are you hoping to get from it? And I go, I don't know. Like, mm -hmm. just see what happens. Yeah. Open-minded. Yeah. Yeah. But I definitely wasn't, I didn't, I don't even know if I knew people did it for a living at that time. Right. So I definitely didn't have that in, in store in mind. So, so how did the going, taking the steps into social media kind of expand your network of fellow woodworkers and fellow furniture makers and things like that? Oh, it's, it's all, my only network. I don't, you know, my, in real life, anybody that I do know in person is basically only I've met online. I have a, maybe a couple of local companies, but I don't have any friends that would work. My, my dad doesn't really would work. So everybody I know is through social media. Nice. Cor so Cormac and, and I didn't meet in person for three years after we started this podcast. Right. Right. And, and we met on Twitter. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's that's, a that's very the world similar story. Yeah, I mean, yep. and that was it is, you know, we actually started with Twitter and we started a network of architects and like-minded people. Just the conversation there between like all of these different architects kind of grew into something that now almost all of our friends that we connect with on a yearly basis when we go to these conferences and stuff are all of these people that we've known for well over a decade. You know, I, I met a guy in this past San Francisco conference. I met him for the first time face to face after knowing him for about 13 years. And he was just like, and, and the thing about it was, is just, and I'm sure it's the same with you. It's just like, you just roll right into the conversations that you've been having. You know, it's not, it's yeah. not, there's nothing, it's not like that, you know, hi, I'm meeting my pen pal for the first time, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. It's, you know, you just kind of like roll right on into it. Yeah, no, I have uh, a handful of friends. One friend, we have kind of a group chat of YouTube woodworker guys. And one of them, I'm, I feel like I'm, I consider him a good friend. And my wife said something about, she's like, but you've never met him. I'm like, no, I met him at the conference. I'm like, oh wait, he didn't go. <laughs> and so I re like realized, yeah. like I text him every week, like, yeah, but I've never actually spoken to him in person. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the great thing about, I mean, look, put the troll in crappy comments aside, just the, the fact that you can find, you know, people who, you know, not only you can network with potential you know, clients, I follow you because I just appreciate the, the level of craftsmanship, the level of wit. It's just like, you know, everything about the way that you kind of present your work, you know, it's, it's genuine enough to just say, yeah, you know, it's just, it's, it's a, you, you fit, you almost fit the mold of an architect that, you know, is just like, Hey, I'm just doing this because I just want to do good work. I enjoy doing this. I love doing this. I mean, this is why Evan and I, for the past 11 years have been blabbering on bi-weekly and now weekly about our passion about architecture is just because we just love to do it. Well, I've, I've always wanted to pretend I was an architect, so. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> the, the, the idea of, of recording yourself while you're making stuff is different than just making stuff, right? It, there's another level to it of a little bit of prep. You know, things have gotten easier over the years with equipment and batteries and things like that to actually do it. Mm -hmm. And if, side story, somebody asked me once in a conference where we were up on a panel, what's your favorite productivity tool? <laughs> and I said, YouTube, like there's just an incredible amount of stuff. And it's because of guys like you who are putting a camera as they're making something. And then you, you're taking next steps. You're going back, you're adding voiceover, 
and things like that so that you can really explain things. Maybe just talk about like, because I think there's a lot of architects out there who could be showing behind the curtain of like what's going on in the Mm -hmm. office of an architect. But there is a level of production fright that exists, right? Because I mean, architects are kind of perfectionists as it is. And I mean, yeah. And, and, and so there's that side of it. Um, and, and, and another side comment is I think one of the reasons I like, enjoy, I enjoy watching you is because I feel like I, I could do that. You make it so that I feel like I could do that. And those are my favorite kind of YouTube channels to watch and, and learn from. And so to me, like that's the ultimate goal for a lot of architects, or maybe it should be is like to get output showing off their skills, but also disseminating the knowledge and the wisdom that they have of having done this for decades and decades. And it's not as hard as it, as it sounds, but it is also, there is another level to it that is like, if you could make a table, you would do it in half the time, I I would think, than, than if you're filming it too. So there is something, something going on there that's, that needs some dispelling of the myths. Well, my, my, my approach, as I've kind of alluded to, is, you know, just just doing it and just be bad at it and figure it out later, which is the opposite of what you said, These a lot of these architects that are perfectionists. Um, and you don't, I'm not recommending one way or another, because I know I have a friend that's a YouTuber that he's only ever put out 13 videos in two years, and each one has done really well. And he researches each one before he does at the topic and has a script. It's just the opposite of me. My first video was 10 separate videos because I didn't know how to edit one minute clips together so i ordered i uploaded 10 one minute videos and people videos. are like why didn't you just make this one video and i'm like i don't know how <laughs> and so my and then i ended up getting to seven hundred thousand subscribers with i filmed and edited on my iphone Wow! so you, you don't do it you don't need production value and a lot of times i almost worry that production value hurts me at this mm-hmm. point because i have pretty good production value it seems less relatable mm-hmm. so I, I don't think it takes a lot anymore. And the voiceover is just makes it easier for me to not have to be on camera explaining everything because I right. can get long-winded and I just make things way too long. Yeah, You know, one of my favorite YouTubers, besides you, Ken, is Casey Neistat. Casey has a rule. At live, I, this is in one of his, like, how I make a vlog video. Like, he's got this, you know, total self-explanatory video out there. And one of his rules is you get one take. That's it. And so he, he doesn't stand in front of the camera with whatever he does and do multiple takes of it. If he says something wrong, like it, it's part of it. If he, or he figures a creative way to edit it is, is another way to kind of tackle that problem. And I think that kind of fits with what you're doing. You may not outright say that rule, but like you're doing stuff that you're not going to redo and do another take of, um, by I think appropriately for the kind of work that you're doing, you're doing, you're, you're handling a lot of that with the voiceover, but when you're actually making stuff, right? Like you're, you're making it that one time. I I'm sure you have mistakes and you'll redo some things, but like, but, but if I mess up the first coat of finish, I'm not going to strip it down. Right. Right. Or do it again. Oh wait, hold on. Let me put all this bark back on there and scrape it off again. You know? Yeah. 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 So there is definitely, I have a full-time videographer now and it makes it a lot easier, but occasionally Especially when I was recording, I would forget to hit record <laughs> count too many times to count. It is so frustrating. You get out right. of this great scene and you're like, so, but if he, if he forgets or it dies, you know, all right, well, yeah, I guess right. we'll figure it out. Right. That sounds familiar, Evan. Yeah. First, 
our uh-huh. first our first interview we did with this one guy who wrote a book about leaving architecture and stuff. And here we do this great video and we've got this me talking with my hands and everything else. And he's like, Hey, I forgot to do the video side of things. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, yep. It happens. Nice. All right. It so happens. let me ask you this because I wanted it. So you've got uh Scott, your new videographer, right? And he's he's help he's now kind of like part of the videos where he's helping you color match things. How did you, how did you as a colorblind person color match and grain match and all of that other stuff before you had Scott helping you out when you were doing it yourself? I mean, um, either poorly or accidentally or with my wife, okay. my wife's very good with colors. Okay. So she, she definitely has, has come in and helped with, is this going to work with this? I, I had a buddy in architecture school who was colorblind. He was red, green, colorblind. And we were asked to go out and do sketches or basic, you know, these like really polished drawings of things that we saw. And he went and he picked this green building with green trees in the background and everything else. And I'm, and I'm sitting next to him. I'm like, Steve, how are you going to do this? And he's just like, hold on. And he's, he's got a whole, you know, his, his toolbox was all of these different green pencils of all of the different hues. I was like, well, how do you tell them? He picks them up and he says, basically, he kind of sees variation shades of gray. And if that, and if it matches that shade, that's what he uses. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, this is damn near perfect. This is better than anybody who like actually sees it because you're, you're catching the tone. So sensitive to exactly. It, it was, right. that's funny. I'm, I'm not super bad colorblind. I, I'm bad enough that I fail those colorblind tests every time. Okay. Um, but I, Actually, I had to take a test with the FAA before I was a pilot oh, yeah. to, to prove that I could see the important colors. <laughs> Please tell tell architects what are the important colors. <laughs> um, it is red, green, and white. They they <laughs> shine a light from the the tower. It's these light gun signals yeah. that in emergencies they'll tell you to do things with that gun. So that's the idea why you have to know. And also, it's the marker lights on the aircraft to know if they're right. Which way which they're going. direction they're coming? Well, I'll tell you, you're wrong. The most important color is black to architects. <laughs> you know, it's funny is I actually I I took a flight test in the army because I wanted to actually try to transfer into aviation, and I, I went through everything, and the one thing that I failed was the sneezing in light. They had one where basically, if you like sneeze and flinch in sunlight that it was mm. an automatic failure. And so I apparently, you know, I don't apparently, I do sneeze in, I don't know. I don't know if it's, I don't know what it was, but I, a thing. I, ha- I yeah. had a ref- I had a reflex that. Um, are you sure? Are you sure they weren't just messing with you? They're like, hey, let's see if we can make this guy sneeze. <laughs> they <laughs> say, say you can't be a pilot then. Yeah, they, so, you know, I just went into uh, air defense artillery. So I was like, oh, if I can't fly him, I'll shoot him down. There you go. <laughs> I I have a question about materials. I I know you you work a lot with acrylics. You say you're a woodworker too, right? And a lot of times you're mixing these together. And materials are really important to architects too. I mean, there's a lot of buildings out there don't do justice to what I'm saying right now because there's a lot of stucco buildings or there you know there's very basic concrete block or or whatever and you know a lot of times those are decisions based on first cost and and you know maintenance and things like that um but 
architects take materials really seriously. I, I'm just wondering like where your love for wood or, and then maybe expand upon that, like the, just what are your favorite materials to work with and why I think that'd be an interesting part of the conversation to move into. It's, it's one of the questions people ask, like how, as a relatively new woodworker, like how can I make people think that I'm better? How can I be better? And I still feel like I'm a fraud a lot of the times because I just buy the really, really nice wood. I'm mm. pretty good at shopping wood, which isn't anything to brag about. But um, walnut in particular, the the West Coast walnut, it's a lot different than the East Coast stuff. Mm -hmm. mm. We just get the prettiest wood out here. And I live within a few miles of a, one of the biggest walnut suppliers in the world. And I have some other places I can go to as well. So just using the best materials, which I'm sure you guys can relate to, puts you that leg above everybody else, oh, yeah. even if they're better craftsmen. If you have some plain, straight, brown walnut, it's not going to be nearly as impressive as some of the stuff that I have to work with. Yeah, I, so it's interesting, right? When your you're, question, the, uh, the I, I, walnut as far as woods, and I do like using the epoxy on some of those kind of funkier broken pieces because you can use this kind of otherwise slab that would have had to get chopped up into little bits mm -hmm. and just still maintain the kind of natural look of it. Yeah. I've worked with walnut a few times and it's just incredible the sharpness that you can get on a cut with a with a good blade. But but it's also interesting. I think you do have to have kind of a well, you don't have to, but but better tools then almost become a requirement as well. Better blades, sharper blades, truer saws, all of those things. It's not a requirement, but man, it makes the outcome way better. And and now all of a sudden you're talking about a whole other ball game when it comes to a, a wood shop. Yeah, it, it's it's true. There's a handful of tools, especially um I always tell people if you're spending money a little bit at a time to work backwards from when the piece is finished early on, because you could, if you're rough cutting it, you can use a chainsaw basically, you know, because you're going to be trimming it down later in the process. But when you're doing your finish sanding, that's the last thing that's going to touch it before your finish goes on. So buy a really good sander before you buy a good circular saw, because you have plenty of time. You can sand out some of those saw marks if you have to but you can't fix a bad sander. Yeah. So speaking of tools, so when you started, when you started this from going from a hobbyist to an, this being your day job, did you ever really factor like, oh my gosh, this is like the, the cost of all of these tools are amazing because I mean, I, I, I try to convince my wife. It's like, you know, Hey, she's like, do you think that you could build that? I'm like, yeah. But it's not going to be cheap because not only do I have to buy the material, but I have to buy all of the, you know, I don't have any of the tools. Ask me to fix a car. I've got all of those tools. But ask me to start woodworking. I have hand, hands, yeah. hand sanders and things like that. My, my transition was kind of a blurred line from I didn't have a firm. I mean, I did quit my job one day, but I had a lot of the tools already. So it wasn't like, oh, if I'm going to do this, I have to go get a commercial space and buy commercial tools and all that. I didn't really change anything as far as the tools I had at the time. And it's just piecing it together, you know, just like everybody does with your car tools. You know, you don't, you didn't go out and buy every single tool that you have one day. Yeah. You just piece together over your lifetime. And I do the same thing. You know, I started out with a couple of Craigslist tools, probably, well, definitely less than a thousand dollars of tools before I ever after that $1,000, everything was just sold with profits from furniture I sold or mm -hmm. bought with profits. So how, the, okay, this this has always been, I, I've asked this about a, a bunch of different people who've transitioned from one career to another. So how did you actually convince your wife, hey, 
I'm going to give up the security of this job that I've been doing for X amount of years and stuff. And this hobby that I've been doing, this is going to be my new job. How, how, how did that conversation go over? Publicly, I say, oh, my wife is amazing and supported my decision. And that was that. <laughs> Privately, it was more conversations than that. It was, it took a lot of guts for me to one, admit to myself that I want to quit my job, mm -hmm. let alone mm -hmm. tell her that. And she's, she runs her family's business and she has a lot of pressure on her. So I think she always liked, okay, if all, if everything else fails, we'll be fine. Like you have a job that can support us. Right. And so when I really decided I wanted to do it, it was a couple of hard conversations and it wasn't a decision we took lightly. And eventually she's like, yeah, let's do it. And then that was March of 2020. Uh, if you remember March of 2020 at all. I do. <laughs> Just a little bit. Everybody does. Yeah, we try Things get really interesting then. And it was like, oh crap. Like, I'm actually kind of glad I did it then because I don't know that she would have let me <laughs> if I waited another month or two mm. because... Her business went from like, they didn't know if they were going to be out of business. You know, they've, her dad started this 30 years ago wow. and all of a sudden it was like, we don't know if we're going to close the doors. They had a month or something with 30 some locations oh, and wow. overhead and no, and no sales. And then they, they rebounded and have done incredibly well. But I, I really feel for her in that time because she was under a lot of stress. Yeah. The, the, the whole, like, uh, every news report in these uncertain times, like you were really feeling that, I mean, that. I'm sure that was a big. Yeah. And I, I will say when I decided to quit, I was making just about as much selling furniture as I was at my job. Mm -hmm. And granted, I wouldn't have my job now. So it's not exactly the same when you quit. But I figured with a little bit of YouTube, which was huge at the time, but supplementing it, I felt like I could still be as good as my full-time job, which turns out the YouTube and COVID paired very nicely together Yeah, because everybody right. was home watching, watching the internet. Right. Right. <laughs> so, so how, when you were making that transition, because this is, you know, this is something that everybody goes through is like, because a lot of times people, especially in like architecture, a lot of times people work for larger firms and they always want to be their own boss. They want to go out on their own and do their own thing, but there's always this hesitation they, they love the safety net of the job, the big firms, or just working sure. for someone else. Hey, you're going to go out and get those jobs. And now if I go out on my own, I have to go, for, I have to do business development. I have to go find the clients. I have to go do all this stuff. I mean, how many times did you question yourself? Hey, I can always go back and do this. And, um, if, I, if I'm being honest, not once. Good. Mm. Good. It was, you know, it. That first year, like I said, I think due to COVID, everybody on YouTube did really well. Mm -hmm. It's just everybody was more, more eyeballs were on it. And I haven't really taken my foot off the gas since then. And I, uh, ne never considered going back to flying from, from when I stopped. YouTube was not a job when we were growing up, right? I think we're all old enough here. Like, and, and I think what's interesting, is, you know, I've got kids and, and I think about careers that exist. And I think about careers that don't even exist yet that they yeah. could potentially be doing. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just wondering from your perspective, jumping into like, we're, we're architects We're I mean, even podcasting has been around for quite a while, uh, may, maybe similar, uh, probably earlier than YouTube, but, but not by much. Right. But the, yeah. the idea of doing something alternative like that and actually making a living and actually thriving 
on that, I think is lost on some of the older generations that that could totally include gener- us as well, right? And yeah. the, the idea of streamers and uh, esports, yeah. and like you could just the list is super long, right? And I think it's really interesting. I, I'm just wondering what you think about that because I'm sure that was part of those some of those conversations with your wife. It's like, is this is this even really a thing? And because we've been trained to think that like there are there are these white collar jobs, there are these blue collar jobs, and those are all the jobs that exist in the world. What like, and this is outside of that. I I personally look at it like professional sports, whereas we all grew up, at least I did, you know, wanting to be a professional athlete. Mm. And pretty soon that becomes evident whether it's a reality or not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's a little more uh, muddled of a line with with YouTube or things like that. But if if it's a job it'll become evident if you're not being subsidized by your parents or whoever, you know, your significant other, you don't get to just say, I'm going to be a YouTuber and not make any money. Right. If you want to do it, just like an athlete, they have to be able to make, make a living at it. So prove it. I think whether it's streaming or whatever that next job is, is, is great. But you know, just like a job, you have to worry about your job security. Is this something that's probably going to be around in 10 years or how are you positioning yourself to be okay when it's not, you know, popular in 10 years? Yeah. My my youngest just the other day said, I don't Google for stuff. I go on YouTube and I, I search there, right? And so there's definitely like a wave that you're riding at YouTube and it's not going to be here forever, right? I mean, it's just natural with all of these these big companies. Who knows when, but... I, I'm, I'm definitely positioning myself so I should hopefully be okay if it's not, but I actually think YouTube will be here forever. I mean, not mm. forever, but I think YouTube is here to stay in terms of, I think it's just getting started. Whereas how, how many years ago did nobody watch YouTube on their, on their TV? Right. 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 And how many more years until everybody does? Cause still it's not super common for someone to sit down and watch one of my videos on their TV. But I think in 10 years it will be, whereas more and more people yeah. getting, you know, more common using it in, you know, a more frequent manner. Why do you think we're there, Kim? <laughs> Yeah. What's that? Why do you think we're there? Yeah. No, we're 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 definitely moving in that direction. Yeah. But I think it it uh, architecture is a, a, another visual medium, like the kind of thing that you're showing on your channel all the time. This is something that's been lacking from the architectural podcasting space for sure. And so I, that's that's one of the big reasons for us to to go in that direction. We'll have a, yeah, and yeah, people fill fill those niches when they when they're there, the yeah. gaps when they're there. Yeah. I mean, Evan, you said it in that one conference we were at when somebody said, what is your favorite tool? And you said YouTube. I mean, I can go down and ask my daughter how she's studying for her math and it's, she's watching YouTube videos. She's like, I have the the teacher's not explaining it the way that I understand it. So she goes out and she scours YouTube, finds videos that helps her understand the math courses that she's doing. And so that's the next round of people who are going to, you know, it's like, Hey, if uh, somebody, if my daughter wants to start building tables, guess where I'm, guess where she's going to probably end up. And, and I'm in the back of my head, I've been excited for that generation that grew up on YouTube to get mature enough or old enough that they want to watch some woodworking videos mm-hmm. because I can just barely get down to the 25 year olds maybe, but mm. I feel like when that next wave grows up, it could be potential new viewers for me more so than there currently is. Well, I will say this, that apparently there's something shared between my Instagram and my uh, daughter's Instagram and my YouTube and hers that apparently she's like, you know, Hey, uh, my Instagram has been flooded with a lot of woodworking videos. I'm like, Oh really? <laughs> well, enjoy them. They're listening. They're just listening. Perfect. <laughs>
So, how how do you pick which project you're going to do next or which direction you're going to go next? Is it do you weigh kind of like you were just talking about, like the metrics, the algorithm, like the the demographics of the audience? Is it purely you're scratching your own itch? Like where is that where is that coming from? I try more so lately. In the past, it was just building customers' projects and filming it. I've kind of stopped doing that. Not that I will never start again, but I just try to make something interesting. This, the denim table, I think you mentioned you saw it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that was just something I was like, I think this will be cool. Like mm-hmm. I've never seen anybody try this before and I think it'll be really interesting. But if you try to follow the, I hate the term algorithm because that's what everybody uses as a crutch. Mm-hmm. But if you try to chase the algorithm or chase the de- you know demographics, it's it's obvious and it won't work. You'll be late. Well, then you're you working know? for something else. Right? You're not working for yourself as much. Well, I mean, I still have, I work hard at things I don't necessarily want to do because it's part about making better content. Um, Mm -hmm. But no, I just try to make something interesting. And if it's interesting to me, I I hope it'll be interesting to other people. I'm doing my next project is my first project with zero wood in it. Um, I'm restoring a woolly mammoth. Yeah, that's good. I was, Evan had already uh, taken the question about the denim out because I wanted to ask about that. It was just like, how did you just decide, hey. Let's do that. And you said it was just going to be something interesting. And I, and I will say that it definitely turned out beautifully elegant. I mean, this is definitely something that I could say that, you know, when we're specifying furniture in, say, a client's home or something like that, you would definitely say, hey, look at this because this is amazing. This would go perfect in this room. But the the, the mammoth tusk, I was just like, all right, I, I just, I got to ask, like, what are you thinking there? So, so I didn't know until I was talking to my sister and my brother-in-law that not everybody thought that it was awesome. Like, because they were like, my, my dad, he's, he's similar to me and he thinks it's the coolest thing in the world. And then they're like, but wh- why? And I was like, what do you mean? Why? And they're like, and I, I ended up showing them like a finished one and they're like, oh, that's cool. So I'm hoping that I'm not way out of bounds here, but it just comes out of the ground in this kind of gray, ugly, flaky right. piece. And it, when it's finished, I think it's beautiful oh. and it's a part of natural history. And so, yeah. I, I, I mean, if the video flops, you can say, well, there we go. <laughs> but I think it'll be interesting. Um, and I've also, my dream, my goal, my aspirations are is to be like, you guys ever watch Jeremy Clarkson? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> that guy can review a Ford Fiesta or a McLaren and it's just as interesting because oh, yeah. he's yeah. just that great of a personality exactly and I'm I'm definitely not there yet but I'm always like if I can just get to the point where I can keep any content entertaining mm-hmm. and so that's whether it's a mammoth husk or an original denim table or a walnut table I'm trying to be able to keep people engaged enough right. to like whatever I'm doing well and you're also running an experiment the whole time and failure is an option right and I think part of the intrigue of getting all the way through a video because these are not like super short form. They're longer than a lot of TV episodes are, right? And you always reward the people for getting to the end, right? With with some little special thing. And, and I, I love that about it. But the the idea that that it could not work is intriguing mm-hmm. to keep people watching. And 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 so I'm just when it comes to that kind of stuff, is that something that you're intentionally 
you're not you're not like intentionally baiting people, but I mean it's always sure it's always <laughs> okay you okay so I, it's because you know how it turns out. I mean I guess you're, you're you've already lived it and and you're in the editing process. So is that part of your storytelling technique then on purpose? Yeah, I'd say um, I don't before the video starts. I don't think okay how do I re-engage yeah. people this but if something bad is happening i'll say hold on a second let's film this or let's shoot this and this will be a good kind of re-engagement which this mammoth tusk has actually been because not a lot that goes into it apparently like it's time consuming but it's dry you dry it out you sand it you put some epoxy in it and you sand it some more and like those aren't really the most exciting parts of a video so we had to come up with a few different segments mm -hmm. to like this will be a nice break at this point to hopefully re-engage people and then kind of get them back into the story. So, so very much like the kind of like the Clarkson example, because like my wife and I are fully engaged into Clarkson's farm and it's just like, okay, you know, we know that he's not going to like ultimately fail, but we're going to watch the bungles all the way through. Yeah. But yeah, he's going to have a, a good harvest at the end. And it was the, the one of the one episode where you're doing the three tables that was after the mishap of the water content and things like that, it had the one table, I think it was the uh, console table that started to like warp and cup and stuff. And, mm -hmm. and I'm, it, it, it this is, it's going to sound like incredibly nerdy, but I'm like, oh shit, what's going to happen now? It's just like, is he going to like plane it down where it's going to be too thin? And now he's basically going to have to chuck that. It's just like, what's going to happen next, you know, kind of thing. And, and, and it was, you're playing out the scenarios I was, in your, I was like, yeah. I was as equally engaged in like, like, oh crap. Like it's, is, well, is he going to well, have that, another one? <laughs> and that was, that was one of those moments where I actually almost didn't film any of that. Cause I was just like frustrated and was like, okay, I gotta go do this. Then it was like, mm. hold on. Like this could be an interesting yeah. part. Let's get this in there. And, uh, there's also a little bit of the, I've showed some mistakes, but now if I, I screwed this one up, like also yeah. like. Now I go to the, from the like, oh, the guy who figures out his flaws to the guy that screws everything up. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, this is going to really be bad if this one can't be fixed. Yeah. Yeah. So my, my wife and I like watching the great British baking show oh, yeah. and like half of the fun on that show is the epic fails that happen, right? As they're pulling the thing out to bring it up to the judge's table and it's like barely balancing on the plate and something falls off. And I mean, that, that is part of, it's, it's real life. Everybody knows that. That would probably happen to me too oh, yeah. if I was doing it right. But but we were living it vicariously through through these other characters. A, a, any any time I have a big mess up or mishap in the video making process or the project, I always have the what most people don't have as well. It'll be interesting for the video. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Think about it again, though. The genuineness of the art of creating. You're just like okay, look, creating is a series of trial and error. It's experimentation. Sometimes it's going to go well. Sometimes it's going to not go well. Sometimes oh, I'm going to say, oh, shit, I forgot to check the moisture content of this slab. And, you know, but I mean, it, yeah. and you know what? I guarantee you that if the first time I ever try to make a table, not saying I'm going to, the first thing I'm going to check is the moisture content. I was like, oh, I remember uh, Cam kind of, you know, screwed in that one. And I, I wish I could say that I did it for the people so they can learn from my mistakes. I really do it for entertainment, but that's a nice ancillary benefit to right. people being able to like right. be, educate themselves. It, and that's the thing is, it's like yeah, the truthfulness in craft is that it's not always going to go right. I mean, wood is absolutely the most unforgiving one. You do something, that crack is going to just, you're, you can't anticipate what's going to happen next with it. 
And the thing about it is, is, is as you, what I find interesting about it is like, okay, yeah, you've busted through the backside of this hay ball and you showed how to fix it and showed the right way to fix it and you never see it again. Or it's just like, okay, now I'm going to make this a feature or I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. So there's always these options. Like we don't ever really like actually get the option to like kind of like trial and error and screw up because then it's a, you know, multi-million dollar lawsuit for us. They're like, why is my building leaking? It's just yeah. like, well, you know, I was trying something new with the glass and we've, we wanted an open corner. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but the open corner doesn't hold back water. It's like, yeah, but it looks cool, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, in, in the woodworking world, though, we all do it. I, you know, I might do it more than other woodworkers, but everybody makes mistakes and has to patch things or color mat, you know, get the Sharpie out occasionally, you know, to just fix a little bit. Right. And I just show it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, then there's just like, the thing about like what your videos kind of show is that the process is long. It's arduous, sometimes tedious, but it's, it's always that end result is just, you look at, you look at the process, you think, oh, there's, there's no way that this is going to end up being amazing piece. And then you, know, you, you fast forward to the very end of it and you see this amazing piece. And you're like, oh my Lord, this is absolutely amazing. It's like, how the yeah, hell did he pull that off? It's the Bob Ross effect. That's what we always, you know, you grew yeah, up watching it. And you're like, accident. why would he ruin it? He just put a streak right down the middle it's, of it. And you're like, oh, it's beautiful. Oh, that's what, <laughs> exactly. It's like, oh, that's what he's doing. Because I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to just throw this out there that never really been a big fan of like people who start doing the flame treatment of wood. Like, but I want to see like the natural grain and all of this other stuff. And then the process that you got to at the end with the layers of the clear epoxy to kind of like really show that the, it was just like, yeah, okay, see, I'm, I'm the dumbass for not believing that it's going to turn out <laughs> I mean, great. I'm, I'm the, I, I've built many things that I didn't like. They, I just, people say like, that's the ugliest thing you've done. I was like, yeah, I agree. Like, <laughs> you know, it's, oh, it happens. Like, I didn't, there's no ambiguity there. It's like, no, that's the worst thing I've ever built. Like, but you, yeah. but you learned something from it, right? And that's the, yeah. you know, that's kind of like the joy of craft, right? Is learning from it. I sit and I draw all the time and not just architectural drawing, but like, you know, actually like sketching and drawing and, and all of that other stuff. And for the longest time, I would never show anybody anything because it was just like, it was crap to me. It was just like, I, and then I started to like really actually start like putting it out there, letting people see it and all this other stuff. And I'd get comments here back and, you know, back and stuff. And ultimately at the end of the day, it was like, well, I'm not really doing it for you. I'm doing it for me. But, yeah. but the thing about it is, is that I'm learning from it. I'm learning from the mistakes. And it's like, oh yeah, you, you called me out on that mistake. And I looked down and I was like, ah, yeah, you know, that was a screw up. I was like, you know what? Yeah. I'm going to try to keep like honing in on that and maybe like get it a little bit better the next time. Or the, the ones, the ones I don't get though, is when people tell me that I'm wrong for putting what the customer asked for on, you know, yeah. like. And it's just like, oh. it's just a matter of taste. Like, oh, maybe these legs or this or whatever, or the color of epoxy. They like, oh, that would have been beautiful, but you ruined it with black epoxy. I'm like, well, the customer wanted that for their home. So like, you, yeah, I think they know what they want. I was going to say, you, you literally, you get judged on the final product oh gosh, and, and yes. there's no conversation about what the client actually wanted out of it as part of that presentation. And yeah. you get judged on all that. And it's like, well... Like they're the ones paying for it, right? right? And so yeah. that is a huge part of it as well. Yeah, I was going to say you—you you literally just explained our life in architecture. It's just like, yeah. it's just like, why did you do that? It's like, 
because this person who was paying for it wanted us yeah. to do that. And so we did. You know, was it exactly the way we wanted it? Maybe not. But again, we are not paying for it. Yeah, yeah. I will make, yeah, the person in the comments, I'll make you exactly what you want. Just, just, just pay what they pay. Exactly. Yeah, show me the money. Well, Cam, this has been awesome. You have been very generous with your time. I feel like we're, we're a little bit over, but uh, this has been a fun conversation and, yeah. and we appreciate what you're doing. I think like the whole idea of showing your work is something that it means a lot. And I think a lot of people take it for granted. I mean, there's an, an incredible amount of stuff out there. Your content is, is part of that. It's a huge resource for people who are into furniture and tools. And we didn't even get to talk about the stuff you're doing outside of YouTube with your website for people to share tools and, and do really, really interesting. Like the stuff's expensive. It would be great if there's some like community aspect to that. I, I think there's a lot of other stuff we, we could have gotten to, but, but sure. I appreciate you spending time with us today. Of course, of course, no, happy to do it. And uh, if anybody isn't interested, I don't make any money from it, but it's makerbook.io is a, it's kind of like a, I don't know, an Uber for shop space. Yeah. yeah. Good, good description. So one last question is the hammer behind you. Is that one of your Blacktail Studio brass hammers? No, so every everything on this wall was my great great grandfather's, oh, wow. except for you can't see the chisel, and then this one a viewer made me. It's actually a really beautiful uh, design, so I hung that Very up there cool. too. Yeah. But that cool. my brass hammer isn't cool enough for that wall. I don't know. See, I told see, you that I, architect's favorite color is black, and that's my background. Yeah, <laughs> I, I felt like I almost went too dark with my room because it's almost black. I had to crank some light on here, so I'm I, I like the black too. Well, it's cool. 9:40 p.m. on the uh, Eastern Time Zone, so you know it's dark outside, and he's always complaining that I turn the lights on behind me. And <laughs> fair enough, I, like I got dark. black. I got blackout shades too. I can I can go darker. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, yeah. man. This has been a really fun conversation to have, and we appreciate you making it happen. Abs yeah, Evan Cormack, anytime. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Thanks.